Okay, Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. The entire Israelite community departed from Elam and came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had left the land of Egypt. The entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by Yahweh's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. Instead, you brought us into this wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. May Yahweh bless His word to our hearts today. I'm going to begin some lessons tonight on the 16th chapter of the book of Exodus. And there's much to learn in this chapter, and not just about the Sabbath, albeit that is one of the main elements in the chapter, and we'll get to that. But we begin today by just looking at the first three verses and give a brief background on explaining where we're at in the book of Exodus to help bring us all up to speed. In Exodus 12, we have a great chapter in Scripture. It's the Passover chapter. It's the place in the book of Exodus where we learn about the keeping of the Passover, the tenth plague on the firstborn in the land of Egypt, and the removal of the Israelite people from the land of Egypt. As we sit here today, we're celebrating one aspect of that deliverance from Egypt, and that is the aspect of dwelling in booths or temporary shelters. We must remember that the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Tabernacles, while one takes place in the spring and one takes place in the fall, in actuality it's one and the same feast. They both commemorate the deliverance of the Israelites from the land of Egypt. One of the feasts center in on what the Israelites ate when they left Egypt. The other one centers in on what the Israelites lived in when they left the land of Egypt. So when the Israelites left that land of bondage, they journeyed into the wilderness and they lived in booths or in temporary shelters for about 40 years. And we're commanded to do the same for seven days a year to memorialize that occurrence. That's Exodus chapter 12. In Exodus 13, we have instructions about the firstborn, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and a few other things. Then in Exodus 14, it's a great chapter, it deals with the crossing of the Red Sea. And Exodus 15 gives us the song that the Israelites sang once they crossed the sea and the Egyptians were drowned. That's Exodus chapter 14 and 15. 15 is the beautiful song where we see Miriam into her 80s, well into her 80s, possibly in her 90s, leading the sisters there with a tambourine in the dance. I will sing unto Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider, he's thrown into the sea. Then we come to Exodus 16. And the first part of verse 1 reads like this. The entire Israelite community departed from Elam and came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. So, we should ask ourselves, where is Elam? Well, at the end of Exodus 15, before you get into chapter 16, we read of Israel coming to a place that they named Mara, which means bitter. And then after Mara, they come to a place named Elam. And at Elam, there were 12 springs of water, and there were 70 date palm trees. So they camped there by the waters and the trees. Now, if you look at the map on the screen, 
you'll see that Ramses and Goshen, Ramses is in Egypt, Goshen land is where the Israelites lived when they were in Egypt, in Egyptian bondage. You'll see both of these at the top left on the map on the screen. And you'll see a red arrow marker that shows what is likely the path that Israel took when they left the land of Egypt. Now, down towards the bottom of the red marker, you'll see the wilderness of Sin, called in our Bible the wilderness of, we might pronounce, Sin. But let's not confuse the two, uh, because the biblical location is pronounced Sin, like in S-E-E-N. The word Sin here means thorns and clay, and it's probably named that because there were much thorns and clay in the wilderness at that place. The name seen has nothing to do with our English word pronounced sin, except that it looks similar when translated into our English Bibles. And that shouldn't confuse us too much because we know that there is such a thing called homonyms where words can sound and even look the same but be totally different because they're in different languages. So Elam is somewhere close to the wilderness of sin here on the map. And verse 1 tells us that the wilderness of sin is between Elam and Sinai. Now that last word, Sinai, should be familiar to many of you. The reason it should is because Sinai is where the Israelites received Yahweh's law. The Ten Commandments, including many other laws, sub-laws, that Moses wrote down in the book of the law and recorded later in the book of Exodus. So, they're between Elam and Sinai. Now let's look at the end of verse 1 along with verse 2. The end of verse 1 says this, On the fifteenth day of the second month, after they had left the land of Egypt, the entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Now I've placed this text on the screen together to make an important point. When we read verse 1 in our Bibles all alone, it reads as though the Israelites journeyed into the wilderness of Sin on the 15th day of the second month. When we read it from our English Bibles. Look at it again. Exodus 16.1 from the HCSB, the Bible I normally read, says this, just a verse by itself. The entire Israelite community departed from Elam and came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had left the land of Egypt. Do you see that? When we read verse 1 as it stands in our English version, it has Israel journeying into the wilderness of Sin on the 15th day. Now I'm presenting to you in this lesson that this is an incorrect verse division in our Bibles. What I mean is this. I think we touched on this somewhere earlier today in some kind of discussion. What I mean is that both chapters and verses in Scripture were added much later after the writing of Scripture. This text in Exodus was originally written in Hebrew around 1,000 years before the time of the Messiah. Chapter and verse editions did not take place as we have them today until about 1,500 years after the time of the Messiah by a man named Theodore Beza or Stephanus. He was one of the guys that was uh, pertinent in the forming of what would later become the King James Version of the Bible. Theodore Beza lived in the 1500s, and the KJV came about at the beginning of the 1600s. Well, you had 2,500 years, 2,500 years after Exodus 16, we have chapter and verse divisions added to the Bible. 
specifically at that time it would have been to the Greek Bible, not even necessarily the English, which would come a little bit later. Now, chapter and verse divisions are not sinful. And they're a good thing to have for Bible study and for easy reference. But they're not inspired. And it's possible that an English Bible version can make a mistake in where chapters and verses should end and begin. That's possible. And so we cannot read a chapter. A lot of times we read all the way to the end of the chapter and we stop, but the thought might continue on for three or four verses or maybe for the entire additional chapter. Romans nine, Romans 8, 9, 10, and 11 come to mind. You really won't understand any of those chapters unless you read Romans 8, 9, 10, and 11. And if we want to get really technical, you just need to read the whole letter that Paul wrote to the assembly at Rome because that's the way that you're going to understand it the best. It was written as a letter. Exodus was written as a book to be read as a whole, not to just open up and kind of cherry pick where you want to read, right? I tell people often that when we read the Bible, we should read from the beginning to the end. That's the normal way that we read books. When my wife buys a book from the Christian bookstore, she doesn't start by opening up to chapter 12 because she won't know any of the characters or what's going on and she'll be totally lost. And it's the same thing with Holy Scripture. You know, you can't start by opening up the book of Romans or the book of Revelation, Yahweh forbid. You've got to go to the source or to the beginning so you can understand these things when you get to the end. So, in this case, verse 1 sounds like the Israelites journeyed into the wilderness of Sin on the 15th day of the month. Now, why is that problematic? Well, for us, it could be problematic because we believe that the 15th day of the second month is a, is a weekly Sabbath. And so if they're journeying into the wilderness of Sin on the weekly Sabbath, something's not kosher, something's not jiving right. Let's read it all once like I believe it should be. Exodus 16, 1 through 2, how I believe it should be divided. The entire Israelite community departed from Elam and came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, period. Verse 2. On the fifteenth day of the second month, after they had left the land of Egypt, the entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Now see, that leads us, dividing it like that, leads us to showing that the 15th day of the month, or the 15th day of the moon, is connected to the grumbling of the Israelites, and not to the journeying. On the 15th day, they begin to grumble. Now, if you're a sharp Bible student, you won't take my word for that. You shouldn't take my word for anything. But you'll ask this, why is that, Brother Matthew? Why do you think that's how it should be divided? Why is that a better division, chapter and verse, than the one that's already in our English Bibles? Well, my reason stems from first the Septuagint and second the Hebrew text of Scripture. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. This began around the year 250 B.C., at least the Torah portion of the Septuagint, began about the 3rd century, 250 B.C., and it was accomplished by about or around 70 Israelite scholars of that time who knew both Hebrew and Greek. And that's why it's called the Septuagint. It stands for 70 elders. The Septuagint was the Bible, quote-unquote, 
that was used by the Greek-speaking Israelites in and around the area of Alexandria, Egypt. Because there was a man by the name of, I think I taught on this guy when we were going through the book of Daniel, there was a man by the name of Alexander the Great who conquered the majority of the known world at that time. And because Alexander the Great spoke Greek, Greek became the lingua franca, the common language of the known world at that time. This is why I have no problem with certain epistles in the New Testament being originally written in Greek. It's because a lot of these locations, they would have spoken Greek commonly. That would have been the common language. It is also a fact that if you look at the New Testament authors, when they quote the Old Testament, like if you read the New Testament and the author says, as it is written, and then he quotes the Old Testament. Remember seeing that in your Bible several times as you read the New Testament? Well, the majority of the time, the author's quotations align with the Greek Septuagint. Now, if you read your Bible, let's say you have a KJV or a HCSB like I do, and you read the New Testament author, and he says, it is written, and then you go find where it's written, a lot of times, because our Old Testaments are based primarily on the Hebrew text of Scripture, the two won't match exactly. The meaning will still be there, but the exact words won't be. However, if you have a Greek Septuagint, and I would advise, if you're serious about study, to buy a Septuagint, you can examine the original text from which the quotation was given, and you'll see it is an exact quotation by the New Testament author of the Greek Septuagint. So obviously the New Testament authors like Peter and Paul and the rest of them thought that the Septuagint was very primary in their study of sacred scripture. Why do I bring this up, Will? The Septuagint reads like this in my English translation from the Greek that I have at the house, which is the Brenton translation of the Septuagint. Notice carefully. It's up on the screen. And they departed from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, and on the fifteenth day in the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt, all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses. That's Exodus 16.1 in the Septuagint. My point is, is that the Septuagint links the fifteenth day of the month with the murmuring or the grumbling of the Israelites, not with the journeying. Now, I believe that's how it should read in our Bibles today. Now, I've also ran across some evidence in the Hebrew Masoretic text. If you have a Bible today, an English Bible, there's probably a 99.99% chance that your Old Testament is based on the Hebrew Masoretic text. Most Bibles today are. So that's why it's good to have a Greek Septuagint in your library for study. But I ran across some evidence in the Hebrew Masoretic text that leads us in the direction of the 15th being linked with the day the Israelites begin to grumble. So we have a second witness, not just in the Greek text of the Old Testament, but now in the Hebrew text of the Old Testament. I first read this information in a book titled The Christian Passover by a man named Fred R. Coulter. I don't agree with everything Mr. Coulter believes, but I believe that he made a great point from the Hebrew text on this particular verse. And he writes this beginning at page 407 in his book, quote, The presence of a major logical pause between the verb came and the words on the 15th day verifies this fact. This logical pause is denoted by the use of the atna, which resembles an upside-down V, under the Hebrew word for Sinai. 
The presence of the logical pause in Exodus 16.1 shows that Israel had come to the wilderness of Sin and made camp by the beginning of the 15th day. End of quote. So Mr. Coulter points out that there is a pause or a little marking that looks like an upside-down V. It's called an atna in Hebrew. And he, he points out that this is up under the word Sinai, meaning that there is to be a stop there when you read the Hebrew text of Scripture. His point is that one thought stops at Sinai and another begins with the next sentence. Now that's very important because it will help us in determining why the 15th day of the month is mentioned. And it will also aid in showing us the proper Sabbath counting going on as we go on in weeks to come in the chapter and learn about that. There are not too awful many dates in Scripture that Yahweh specifically spells out for us in the Torah. But here in a chapter that is primarily about the weekly Sabbath day, we have the 15th day of the second month standing out right here in verse 2. And for us to say that this is just thrown into the text at random, I think would be illogical. But for us to realize that Yahweh inspired this date to be mentioned at the beginning of the chapter about the Sabbath, I think that there's a purpose behind that. And I think that will be in line with proper biblical hermeneutics and interpretation. See, Yahweh is giving us a point of origin here at the beginning of the chapter. He's spelling out... Not just a day, but a date. The 15th day of the month. And I need to point out something that most of us here will be familiar with, but because this is an exposition or a beginning of an exposition on Exodus 16, you cover all the bases. When we read on the 15th day of the month here, it should be understood as the 15th day of the moon. Not just any month, obviously not the Gregorian month, but the 15th day of the moon. Now the Hebrew word behind month here is the word chodesh, and that's a lunar term. And there are times in scripture where the term chodesh is used, catch this, this is extremely important, it is used interchangeably with another Hebrew term, yerach. Everybody say yerach. Yerach is the Hebrew word for moon. When you're talking about the moon, the orb of the moon, the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures use the term Yerach. And Chodesh, is, we know that it's a lunar term because there's times when it's used interchangeably with the word that means moon. Let me show this in 1 Kings. 1 Kings 8 verse 2. It says, And all the men of Israel assembled themselves unto King Solomon at the feast in the month Ephanim, which is the seventh month. Now, if you read that verse in your English Bible, you won't catch what I'm about to tell you because there's two different Hebrew words behind both words month. The translators chose to translate both Hebrew words as month, but they're two different Hebrew words. The first one, where it says, unto King Solomon at the feast in the month, that's Strong's number 3391 in the Hebrew Chaldee lexicon. But then when it says at the end, which is the seventh month, that's Strong's number 2320. 3391 is Yerach, the orb of the moon, the actual body that Yahweh created. 2320 is the word Chodesh, which oftentimes means month. 
1 Kings 6.38, the same thing, interchangeably. And in the eleventh year, in the month, Yerach, Bull, which is the eighth month, Chodesh, was the house finished throughout all the parts thereof. So some people will try to say that the word Chodesh is not a lunar term, and they'll go by a calendar that is strictly solar and has nothing to do with the moon. But these two passages prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the word Chodesh is a lunar term because it's used interchangeably with the Hebrew word that means moon. Very, very important. Both of these scriptures use the word Yerach. Once again, Yerach is 3391, and I want to give you one definition in Brown, Drivers, and Briggs Hebrew lexicon. Brown, Drivers, and Briggs defines the word Yerach as month, lunar cycle, moon, month, calendar month. Now, this word, Yerach, is the exact same word translated moon in these two passages. Deuteronomy 33, verse 14, and Isaiah 60, verse 20. Deuteronomy 33, 14, Isaiah 60, verse 20, both have the word moon in your English Bible, and the Hebrew word is Yerach. This lets us know that when we read about the 15th day of the month, or any day of the month in Scripture, we're reading about a particular day of the moon. I've said this before, but maybe somebody has never heard it. We see a vestige of this even in our English language when a husband and a wife get married and they go on a honeymoon, which originally meant that they left and went and celebrated for a month. And the honey refers to the sweetness that they would have. It was a honeymoon after their marriage. People say that. For many years I heard that said, but never thought about what I just told you. So we have a vestige of this even in our English language. So the moon teaches us what day of the month that we're in, while the sun teaches us when to begin and end days. The moon does not teach us when to begin a day. The sun does that by setting at sundown. However, the sun does not teach us what day we are in Because the sun looks the same every day. The moon tells us what date we're in by changing shape through the lunar cycle. So, we've established where the Israelites are at in the wilderness. They're between Elam, where they had the 12 springs and the 70 date palms, and Sinai. They're between those two in the wilderness of sin. They haven't quite made it to the mountain yet, Mount Sinai. And we've established that they begin to grumble on the 15th day of the moon in the second moon or second month after they departed from Egypt. Remember, the journeying is not to be equated with the 15th, but the grumbling. The grumbling is to be equated with the 15th. That's when they begin to grumble. Now, seeing that the Passover, remember back in Exodus 12, the Passover was eaten in the first month on the 15th day. That's when they ate the Passover. Well, this in Exodus 16 is about one month since the Israelites were delivered from the land of Egypt. They ate the Passover on the 15th day of the first month. Here on the 15th day of the second month, one month later, they're grumbling. (laughs) Let's look at verses 2 and 3 together. Exodus 16, 2 through 3. The entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by Yahweh's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. Instead, you brought us into this wilderness 
to make this whole assembly die of hunger. Now, why are they grumbling? Well, they say that it's because they're hungry. You know, sometimes you hear people say things like this. I've said this before. Man, if I could have been there to see all those plagues of Egypt, if I could have been there to see the Red Sea part, if I could have walked through on the dry ground with the waters like a wall on my right and my left, if I could have seen Pharaoh and his army get drowned in the sea, I would have never turned away from Yahweh. I would have never questioned Moses, the man of Yahweh. Well, these people that are grumbling here in Exodus 16, one month after they were delivered, these people saw all of that that I just mentioned with their very own eyes. They watched all of those wonders in the land of Egypt. When Yahweh sent that plague, I think it was the ninth plague of darkness for three days over the land of Egypt, and they didn't have darkness in the land of Goshen where the Israelites lived, they experienced that. These people that are grumbling experienced that. Yet they decide now that they wish they would have just died in Egypt because at least they had meat and bread in Egypt but they didn't have any in the wilderness. At least they got to stuff their faces in Egypt and how quickly they forgot about the bondage that they were in. How quickly they forgot about their deliverance from Almighty Yahweh. And you know what? Israel today does the same thing as Israel of old. Yahweh blesses us so much, brothers and sisters. He blesses us with health. He blesses us with an understanding of the Scriptures. He blesses us with a good job, healthy children, a good spouse, good friends, good family of Yahweh. Look around. He's brought us all through so much in our life. And He always supplies our needs. I thought this past week, I'm a worry wart. I get anxious and I worry about a lot of things. But then, when everything finally comes to fruition, I see that Yahweh always works everything out. But yet, a few weeks later, I'll start worrying about something again, and He works it out again. And I wonder, why, Matthew, do you keep doubting Yahweh? I know He's got to be up there saying, man, you just need to have faith, my son. And trust me, I'm going to take care of everything. Everything's going to be all ironed out. He's brought us all through so much in our life, and He always supplies our needs... Yet, when we experience a trial or test, we forget about the months and months, or maybe even the years and years of blessings, and we grumble and we complain. You know, grumbling and complaining is sin. When we start murmuring about this or that, or when we start blaming Yahweh or the spiritual people that Yahweh has placed in our life, like they did with Moses and Aaron, it's a sin. 1 Peter 4, verses 8-9, through 9, Peter writes this, Above all, maintain an intense love for each other, since love covers a multitude of sins. Verse 9, Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Philippians 2, 14-15, Do everything without grumbling and arguing. Boy, that one hits me right in the chest. <laughs> Verse 15, So that you may be blameless and pure, children of Yahweh, who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world. We'll never shine like stars in the lost world if we're doing the same thing that the world does. And they grumble and complain. We don't need to do the same thing. That's what this is saying here. Paul writes in Philippians 2, 14-15. Look at what Yahweh had done for Israel. They had been in bondage for hundreds of years to the Egyptians. But Yahweh had delivered them with great signs and wonders. And now they're going to murmur 
against Moses and Aaron because their stomach wants some meat and bread. Brothers and sisters, look at what Yahweh has done for us. We need to be careful. Brother Matthew needs to be careful. All of us need to be careful not to take the blessings of Yahweh, what He has done for us in our life, for granted. If you're sitting here today at the feast, Yahweh has blessed you to be here. It is a blessing for you to be sitting here right now. If you're breathing, I think all of us are, Yahweh has blessed you to be able to breathe. But we take it for granted because we do it every day. But we inhale and we exhale. We don't have to do that. I could stop doing that right now. That's a blessing from Yahweh. If you're married to a woman of Yahweh, brothers, or a man of Yahweh, sisters, Yahweh has blessed you. If you have children, Yahweh has blessed you. If you're in good health, Yahweh has blessed you. If you have the knowledge of Yahweh the Father, Yeshua the Son, and all of Yahweh's commandments, Yahweh has blessed you. Do not allow these blessings to become common to you. They can very easily. Don't forget what a privilege it is to experience Yahweh's hand in your life. You know, I like to talk to people about this illustration of the hot water because it makes people smile and it's, laughter is good. It's like a medicine, Scripture says, but it gets the point across. Most of us, if not all of us, can simply turn a knob that says H or hot and outflows the hot water. Now, Granddaddy couldn't do that. Right, He had to go out to the well, draw the water, heat it up on the stove, possibly a wood stove. I've experienced that. I had a house one time in Tennessee, 27 acres. We didn't have any electricity. And let me tell you something. That's the longest I think I've ever went without a bath. I think it was three or four days. And then I finally figured out you heat the water up first on the stove, pour the hot water in the tub first, and then add a little bit of cold. I would add a bunch of cold and then try to heat up the cold water. But when I learned, I'll never forget the first time I learned how to draw that bath and keep that bath hot. And I sunk down in that bear claw tub there in Lobelville, Tennessee. And it felt so good because I had not had a hot bath for three or four days. We run a hot bath, we take a hot shower, yet we become so accustomed to it that it ceases to be a blessing. And we take it for granted. We expect. We turn the knob that says H, out comes the hot water. I like to wash my hands with hot water. Turn the H knob, the hot knob, out comes the hot water. And we take this for granted until until the water heater goes out or we lose power. And then we have to wash or shower with freezing cold water. I've done that before too. And we realize how blessed we are to have a thousand baths in a row with hot water. But yet it seems like when we have to take that one cold bath or shower that we want to murmur and complain and forget about the thousand baths that we just had with hot water in a row because that blessing becomes a commonality to us. Murmur, 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 complain, grumble, grumble, grumble. Why can't they get the hot water back on? When are they going to fix this? Call the power company. Let's get this going. I need a hot bath. 
But yet I forget of all those blessings when Yahweh gave me that hot bath. So simple. Turning the H knob. We murmur and complain and we forget about all the benefits that we've been experiencing in that illustration. And I'm afraid that we do the same with Yahweh. I can speak for myself because I know my heart and I know that Yahweh knows it. I have had way more good, smooth days in my life than bad, rough days. I've had some bad, rough days, but I've had way more good, smooth days. I mean, the, the skills is like, here's the good, smooth days and here's the bad, rough days. I've had a lot of days in my life. Yet, when a bad, rough day comes along, what do I do? What does Matthew do? I forget about the long string of good, smooth days. And I only want to concentrate on the bad, rough days. The Israelites forgot about everything that Yahweh had just brought them through. He opened up a sea, for crying out loud. And they walked through on dry ground as Yahweh's special privileged people. And then the other people that was chasing them got drowned in that same sea. They watched that happen. Yet, as they journey and they get to the wilderness of sin, they grumble and they say, we wish we would have died in the land of Egypt. That's a sin, and it's a sin when we do the same thing. It's taking Yahweh's blessings for granted. Now, I want you to ask yourself a question, because Brother Matthew doesn't know your heart, but you know it, and Yahweh knows it. Do you thank Yahweh enough? Or... Have you just been complaining about your circumstances and acting like the Israelites in Exodus 16? Oh, how I wish we would have just died in Egypt. Is that what you're saying in your own way? Do we really want to go back to Egypt? Really, I mean, do we want to go back there? Is that how we want to spend our life, indebted to taskmasters that do not serve Yahweh? Really, think about it. Rotting away in Egypt... Dying with your mouth, it's full of something to eat, but dying without the knowledge and understanding of Yahweh and His laws. No deliverance, no signs and wonders, no law, no Yahweh. Would that we had just died in Egypt. Grumbling, complaining, murmuring in Exodus 16, and we do it today, instead of trusting and having faith in the Almighty Yahweh. Brothers and sisters, we have so much to thank Yahweh for. As some brothers here have said in the past, If Yahweh never did anything else for me from this day on, He's already done a plenty. But you know what? And this is the great part about it. We say if Yahweh never does anything else for us from this day on, but for His elect children, He's going to continue to bless you. He's going to continue to teach you. He's going to continue to chasten or discipline you because He loves you. He's going to continue to prune you as a tree because He wants you to bring forth more fruit. No discipline for the present time seems joyous. When I spank my children, I don't have to do it to these four much at all anymore. Little David, he still gets a pretty good bit of spankings, but it's because he's young. But when I would spank these children when they were young, the discipline that they would experience for the present time was not joyous. And when I say it, I do this because Yahweh tells me I must train you and discipline you. And I don't do it out of hatred because if you spare the rod, you hate your son or your daughter. So I discipline you so that you will learn a lesson. See, now the teenagers, we don't use the spankings, we just take the phones away, right? And they learn discipline that way. Right? Morgan's smiling. Is that right, honey? We discipline our children, though, to train them up so that when they grow up to be grown-ups, 
they're not just like wild animals running to and fro in society. We want them to better society, better this county, better this city. Grow up and serve Yahweh. And your children won't do that if they're just left to themselves. Well, it's the same thing with Yahweh and us. How little David is to me, six years old, 33. Yahweh, I'm like the six-year-old, and Yahweh's like a zillion years old. It's way further spread than me and David. He's way more holy than me, way more intelligent than me. He could wipe me out with a snap of his finger. Read the book of Job there towards the end. He tells Job, who do you think did all this that you're looking at? Yahweh's way up there and I'm way down here. But yet, if I'm His elect child, He loves me and that love means He disciplines me. And when I get out of line, He spanks me. And He knows exactly what each of us individually need to be disciplined so that we will progress and not go back. Now we might think, well, I don't think I need to be disciplined that way. I know I've said that before. Yahweh, why... Do I have to go through that type of discipline? Why do you have to prune me that way? It's not for me to decide. I'm the tree. He's the the husbandman. What did our Messiah say in John 15? I'm the vine. You're the branches. My Father is the husbandman. He's the caretaker. And every tree that brings forth fruit, He prunes so that it might bring forth more fruit. How many want to bring forth more fruit? But how many want to undergo the discipline? We should say, we should raise our hand and say, yes, my son despise not the chastening of Yahweh, nor grow weary of his correction. For whom Yahweh loveth, he disciplineth. He takes delight in every son that is truly his son. So when we have bad days, months, or even years, let's not lose sight of all that Yahweh has accomplished in our lives. Let's not forget about how He delivered us. Let's not grumble and complain. Let's not murmur. Instead, let's do like James says in chapter 1 of his work. Count it all joy when we fall into various trials, asking Yahweh for wisdom to know how to make it through the trial. I'm going to use Brother TJ in this next illustration. I hope he don't get mad at me. We were out here a few days ago working for the feast, and me and Brother TJ were talking, and Brother TJ was doing a little bit of murmuring, a little bit of complaining. Not about not about the feast, but about something else. I'm not putting him on the spot because you guess what? For me preaching this, I'm going to have a day this week or next where I'm going to be the one murmuring and complaining. And some brother's going to have to come up to me and tell me, Brother Matthew, let's get your ducks in a row. All right? So I told him, I said, Brother TJ, let me, let me tell you something. I said, one time I heard a great sermon by a brother. And he was teaching on the book of James. And that brother told me to count it all joy when he falls into various trials and tests. And he smiles, and we just kept on working. I joked with him a little bit about it. But he knows it's true. It's true, isn't it, Brother TJ? But he doesn't always do it, and Brother Matthew doesn't always do it either. All right? But we're supposed to do it. We ought to do it. And so we ought to make a conscious effort to try. And when we fail, we say, Yahweh, I'm sorry. Please forgive me, and I'm going to try harder the next time. I want to count it all joy because the trying of my faith works patience. And we've got to let patience have her perfect work so that we may be perfect and entire, lacking nothing. Lacking nothing. And we don't pray 
that the trial be removed. Brother TJ's taught this. Are we listening? I'm, it's hard for me to receive, but it's truth. We don't pray that the trial be removed. We ask Yahweh for wisdom to get through that trial because He's put that trial there for a purpose, for a reason. He's building us. He's strengthening us. He's making our spiritual muscles much stronger than they were before. There's a reason why Yahweh lets us go through these things. Hallelujah. So if we catch ourselves grumbling and murmuring, what we need to do is stop it. What Brother Matthew needs to do is stop it. Ask for forgiveness. Thank Yahweh for His Son that you can be forgiven. Repent and move on seeking to be grateful. We don't want to be like the world when Yeshua says in Luke 6 that Yahweh is merciful to the ungrateful. That doesn't give us an okay to be ungrateful. It just shows Yahweh in His infinite mercy He's merciful to the ungrateful. But we don't want to be like that. We want to be grateful, not just for the hot baths. But we want to be grateful for every little thing that Yahweh does for us. Amen? Praise Yahweh. Let's stand and have a word of prayer as we close. Dear Heavenly Father, I love You. I love Your Son. And I'm thankful for the indwelling of Your Spirit. Yahweh, Father, I pray You'd help me. It was very convicting putting this message together because I'm an anxious worrier and a murmurer. Father Yahweh, I ask that You would help me with that in my life and anyone else in here, Father Yahweh, as well. Father, I pray that we learn some things from this sermon, some technical things, and also some life principles. I pray that they would not fall on deaf ears. I can't make it do anything, but I know that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the message preached of Your Word. So, Father, I read the Word, and I know it will not return void. Father Yahweh, let it do what You want it to do. I give You glory and honor, Father Yahweh. We bless You for the food that we're about to receive. And, Father Yahweh, let us have some good fellowship, study, and and, uh, learn a lot. Through your Son, Yeshua of Nazareth, I pray. Hallelujah. Amen.